Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at arroya.io. All right. How's it growing, friends? Welcome to Office Hours, your source for free cannabis cultivation education. I'm Keisha. I'm one of your co-moderators today. What's going on, Mandy? Hey, Keisha. Hey, everyone. We're, we're here for episode 69. Sorry. Um, we're excited to be here with you all today. We're also going live over on YouTube. So if you're logging on over there, make sure you send us your questions and I'll get those to the team. If you're active on social media, be sure you're following us on all the platforms. So we're on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Social Club. And quick reminder about the MJs. We're calling on you to nominate us, Arroyo Office Hours, for Cannabis Podcast of the Year for the MJ International Cannabis Awards. Who had some uh, yes, that will be happening during MJ BizCon this year. So I'm going to go ahead and post the link to be able to do that in our chats for you guys right after this. And that'll also be on our social. And we really appreciate the support, you guys. All right. Let's not forget why we're here. We got a ton of crop string questions this week. So let's get right to it. Back over to you, Keisha. Thank you, Mandy. And thanks y'all for showing us some love and getting us nominated for an MJ. We appreciate you. Um, if you are live with us here and have a question, feel free to type it in the chat at any time. And if your question gets picked, we'll have you either unmute yourself or we will ask for you. Seth and Jason are both in the house today. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Yeah, pretty good. Nice. Beautiful weather out today. It's yeah. not too hot out here yet. Not bad too, because I'm from California. So your weather is good all around. Yeah. Excellent. All right. You ready for the first question? We have some unused questions from the last couple of weeks. I'm going to start with this one from Cal Farmer Jake. They wrote in, I water my soil bed constantly with 6.0 pH. When I checked my soil today, the pH in the soil was hitting around 4.5 in almost every greenhouse. Obviously, I made sure my blue lab probe was calibrated. Any idea why my pH in the soil is so low? I'm going to water with 7.0 tomorrow and see if I can bring it back up. Your thoughts? So, I mean, if it's true, you know, if it's living soil, true soil, there could be a lot of factors going on in there. Uh, you know, it could be some amendments that are uh, breaking down or are being released in a timed, you know, a major amount of time. And, or it could be with the way that the microbes are interacting with uh, that soil in there that could be dropping that pH. Yeah. A lot of it's just going to have to do with what, what kind of soil you're running, I guess, you know, what is the media? Is it a, an amended cocoa mix? something that has a little bit of cation exchange capacity. So like it's actually holding on to things. And the other thing too, I guess that really kind of uh, like caught my attention is just beds. You know, if you're watering a bed, are you, what is the runoff situation? Are we hitting, you know, a sizable percentage of runoff at all? And if not, if there is no runoff, we'll generally expect to see pH creep down over time as the plant is feeding. Awesome. Thank you guys. Yeah. Good luck. Cal Farmer Jake, let us know what's going on. All right. I'm going to keep on going here. We got a few question in, questions in from Poppy Grows One. First off, they wrote, so first off, love, love, love the show. The knowledge you guys drop is beyond legendary. Appreciate you, Poppy Grows. All right. Their first question is, do you benefit from organic inputs weekly when using a crop salt A and B as a base? I think we went over this one a couple of weeks ago, but uh, basically it kind of comes down to is your media alive? Um, you know, the synthetic nutrients aren't going to harm any of the microbials that are going on in there unless you're at a, 
extremely high uh, amount of EC in there. Uh, but you know, a lot of times if you're going into something like rock wool or, or cocoa that doesn't have any, um, substantial amount of organic life in there, then, uh, you may or may not have anything that's going to support, um, those biologicals. Yeah. You just need to make sure that you are actually, you know, being able to use them, not just flush them down the drain. Basically a weekly application can be good. And then, you know, one thing I always think about when we're talking organics is if you're looking at like a compost tea or something like that, you're going to be better off either hand applying or having a separate system and not pushing it through your general drip irrigation. Um, that's, that's how a lot of people end up with really inconsistent and clogged emitters across the room. So there can be benefits, but it's all, you know, a, a matter of scale and how efficiently you, efficiently you can apply those organic nutrients. Um, if it takes you a lot, a lot of time to do that, you might not see any kind of premium on it in every situation. And, you know, to Jason's point, um, even if you are running a, a living soil type mix and you're supplementing with salt nutrients, uh, you know, one or two extreme drybacks below a certain point can really kill most of the microbial life in that soil. So it's, it's kind of a balancing act and it's not something that I typically would say is always necessary, but at the same time, we do see plenty of people that do that and, you know, have good results from it. It's just a fairly labor intensive is what it really comes down to. Fantastic. Great. So considerations for organic inputs. Awesome. All right. I think we have some live questions over on YouTube. Mandy, what's happening? Yeah. Thanks everyone for the questions. Dan has one about irrigation. What kind of irrigation strategy do you recommend for the last day before harvest? Usually it's just going to be kind of like your typical ripening schedule is going to be. Yeah. You want to keep that plant pretty, you know, stable right up until the time that you cut it. If I, I know it's always tempting, at least, you know, for me in the past, sometimes like, Hey, let's not water this morning on the harvest day. Like, well, it is going to take all day and yes, those pots are going to be heavy to move out. But for the last part of the room, the one where the part we're going to harvest in the afternoon, we might actually see some wilting plants sometimes if you've got too small of a media. So generally just keep them stable, keep running your generative ripening schedule right up to harvest day. Awesome. Keep them stable growers. Oh, did you want to say something? I was just going to say that being said, if you're going to miss irrigating one day on accident, make it that day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a good thing to remember is like, you want to harvest that plant as healthy as possible at the time. You know, if it's on the verge of wilting when you're harvesting it, it's going to reduce quality most likely. Awesome. Super important things to keep in mind. All right. I think it's, um, that's it for YouTube for now. Um, back over to you, Keisha. Fantastic. Thank you, Mandy. All right. Poppy grows one had a second question here. They were wondering what's your take on herming? Is it a grower's error or a breeder's? What are your thoughts on that? So, it, I mean, it's both factors. Uh, a lot of genetics are much more susceptible to, to herms. Um, a lot of them, you know, even if there's just the, the slightest amount of plant stressors, you're going to start to banana just slightly. Uh, you know, that being said, uh, prolific herming, you know, what people call bananas sometimes, because uh, I like that term better. It's, uh, you know, it, it's really typically going to be showing uh, a lot more often when the plants are stressed. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, Jason, it really is both, you know. One thing to remember with cannabis is, you know, like most plants, it does have hermaphroditic tendencies. Most plants that flower do have both male and female parts. Humans have just spent the last 10 plus thousand years making sure they could separate that factor in cannabis. 
you know, we see in natural populations, a range of plants that, you know, some of them are more dioecious, some of them are more hermaphrodites. So it's kind of just a factor that we have to deal with anytime, you know, especially like doing pheno hunts and stuff, that kind of stuff's going to pop up. And what I start to look at is, uh, you know, are we dealing with those late flower bananas? that usually are more of a late flower stress signal, or is it something like we're seeing actual pollen sacs developing on the plants? And if we're seeing pollen sacs, usually that's leaning more towards a, uh, I'm not gonna say breeder error, but an inherited genetic trait. And uh, a lot of those plants that do express those will oftentimes do it, you know, at one facility they'll express that and at another they won't due to differences like one, one facility is running HID, one facility is running LED, they've got different temperatures in the rooms, different airflow. There's a lot of factors that can go into that. For you know most of your typical commercial producers, when you've got a strain doing that, you can look at a few different things, but if it, you know, if you have a room and that one strain is the only thing that's herming, especially if it's throwing pollen sacs, it might not be uh, really a good idea to keep growing that genetic, you know, unless you're getting an, enough of a premium for it that you could say, dedicate a whole room to monocrop it. Nice. Great advice guys. Thank you so much. All right. We got a write in from Dino. My question is I am growing in one gallon cocoa with a field capacity of around 52%. I'm using 2.33 GPH emitters per plant. I'm struggling to hit field capacity without runoff. It seems I start runoff if the shots are larger than my 1.5%, in turn making my P1 three hours to complete while also trying to steer generatively. Also have trouble stacking EC because of this. Thank you. What would you advise Dino to do? So uh, just to start off with, you know, great setup as far as, uh, you know, the parameters that you're working with. Um, you know, one of the things that you might try to do is if you can get a, a 60% volumetric water content cocoa, that's one of my favorites in, in a one gallon, especially if I'm growing mid to, to large size plants. Um, you know, that might be one option to, to try and um, pursue. Uh, probably, you know, one of the things that could be happening there is just, you're getting so much root volume in there that some of that cocoa is, uh, it's getting entrapped and it's having a harder time getting up to saturation field capacity. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's something I know I've encountered in the past is, uh, especially in a one gallon over vegging it. If you're flipping, like, let's say a three foot tall plant into flower, a lot of times that plant's pretty root bound. I mean, even, you know, three weeks into flower. And to Jason's point, those roots just completely fill out most of the pore space in that cocoa. And that's why, like, even in a really well-balanced, heavily steered cocoa uh, situation, we're still going to see, typically see that field capacity start to, you know, decrease during the last two weeks of flower as that plant's really approaching, you know, completely filling that media. Awesome. Thank you guys. Dino, good luck out there. Keep us posted. Just a reminder, y'all, if you want to get some of your questions answered live, now's the time. So be sure to drop them in the chat and over on YouTube. Okay. Pangbugs wrote in. Thanks a lot for all the great insight. I, I literally have been watching Office Hours for about a week straight, trying to fix our SOP, and it's been really good. We still would be happy if you could tell us why our hard dryback during ripening reduces field capacity, as said on one of the episodes. A little insight into that would be gold. Thanks. Uh, I guess it just depends on how hard a dryback and what your uh, media is. So, I mean, usually what we are always talking about on here is with rock wool, uh, if we get below usually around 35%, 
has a hard time coming back up to field capacity. It just has to do with the fact that uh, when Rockwell is initially wet up, we are washing the the wetting agents out of that product. And those wetting agents are um, what allows the block to be stored and sold uh, and then still get up to field capacity as it's allowing the water to wick into all the pore space in, in the, the Rockwell. And so if we drop below, say, 35%, about 35%, usually for most Rockwells, then... Um, it uh, it'll start channeling. You'll get dry dry sections in the the block or slab. Yeah, and you know even when you you know if it's cocoa too, that goes right back to what we just talked about. A lot of times that root mass is just really filling that cocoa out, and uh, you know also depending on your cocoa mix, sometimes you've got a pretty pretty wide range. You've got bigger chunks and smaller pith pieces. Sometimes that pith has a tendency to just kind of settle and wash out a little bit over time as well. So it's, you know, if, if you're in cocoa, it's not really anything to worry about. Just watch out on those hard drybacks to make sure you're not going anywhere near wilting point or spiking that EC too high. That's kind of usually how we try to guide how far to push those drybacks during ripening before we bring in a maintenance shot. And cocoa, is, it's typically much more forgiving. Um, you know, like like Seth said, it, it, we, it's not necessarily going to, to permanently disrupt how the cocoa can perform, but a lot of times it will take a few days to actually get back up. So if we've dried, dried the cocoa back to say like 5%, maybe uh, 10%, uh, that stuff's so dry that it's just going to take a long time for it to, to get up to field capacity again. And basically a lot of times that won't happen with your typical P1 irrigations that you might've been running. I always like to think about like, uh, you know, if you're out in the desert and that sand is really dry, you know, if you spit in the sand, it just kind of rolls across the top. Um, same, same kind of thing. Substrates that are already at some amount of uh, water content are going to soak up water better. Uh, anything that's really dry is going to have some types of uh, hydrophobic properties. Oh yeah. If you just throw one of those cocoa blocks into a tub of water, it'll sit there and float for a long time before it actually wicks up, starts wicking up all the water. I mean, that's part of why too, you know, we always stress be patient when you're hydrating your media initially and just work that into your SOP. Like it's going to take a few hours to properly hydrate this media initially, you know, and personally, um, like running around the greenhouse when I did have a dripper, uh, dripper fail or something like that with the cocoa, you just get a tray or a small bucket, fill it with your nutrient solution and let that block sit in there for a few minutes, walk away, do something else. Don't forget it in there, <laughs> but obviously that's not so easy to do on a, a full room unless you happen to have flood trays just in case you overdry it. Mikey dropped our good friend. Mikey dropped in the comments here. I'm a big fan of the pith cubes. The strand cubes build EC too quickly and the pith pots just don't hold enough water weight. Yeah. Love that. Thank you, Mikey. Love, love the community sharing here. All right, Mandy, what's happening on YouTube? Oh man, we're getting some discussion over there. PG wants to know, I'm growing in my attic with crazy high temperatures, 40 degrees Celsius with LEDs. Plants seem to be okay with it though, but I lost the smell. I was thinking about ice cubes every night at flush. Would that save a bit of my terpenes? What do you guys think? Uh, buy an air conditioner. <laughs> That's, I wish I had something better to say, but yeah, when you start to hit those high temps, you basically just gas off any terps that the plant produces. They're not retained. Oh man, that's rough. He came back with impossible to get the room cold. The roof is terribly um, insulated. Yeah, that's, you know, I, everyone starts with their gen one and it's just kind of start working it out from there right now. I don't know if the, 
ice would do much. I mean, running something like a, a swamp cooler, that's just going to bring your humidity up to help deal with that high heat. And then also it gets some evaporative cooling going on. That might be your only option, but now you're going to be dealing with a very, very humid environment to keep that VPD in range as well. So I feel for you, man. That's a, that's a tough situation to be in. And like I said, you learn from every run. So once this one comes down, next one might be time to try to look around and see if you can invest a little more into your equipment. It's uh, you know, we're, a lot of times we've gone through challenges and you know, basement grower challenges. And in this case, I think you're a little bit higher in your attic grower challenges. So. Yeah. Very opposite of trying to get the basement above 70 degrees. Oh my gosh, those are great notes. And yes, please do keep us posted with that one, PG. Um, we got another question that came in from trees. Should I flush cocoa? No, no real need to um, just make sure you can actually monitor your ECs, you know, uh, really where that whole practice came from initially. I mean, part of it is, you know, the belief that we need to pull nutrients out of the plant, which is not really true. But uh, going back to before any time you had enough visibility on what was going on inside the root zone, that that's just like running high ECs without any visibility. You're kind of flirting with danger a lot of the time. So in cocoa, if you have been like, let's say hand watering as you think the plants need it. And let's say Jason who runs way more runoff than I run. <laughs> so suddenly if he's pushing an adequate amount of runoff, his ECs are in check. If I haven't been pushing much runoff or let's say I haven't been making sure my irrigation schedule is adequate my my ec might be built up excessively high by the time i hit ripening and start pushing deep drybacks so sometimes the easiest way to deal with that is to flush it out but that's not necessarily ideal uh you know and, and one thing to always remember too if you're at a let's say a 6 to 14 range on your ec during ripening if you suddenly flush that out we've completely changed that osmotic equation in the rhizosphere right around the roots now the plant has to work to try to change that. And it's not a thing it can do very quickly at all. Awesome. Thank you guys for that. Peter has a question. I'm using no-till organic living soil, 200 gallon in a four by eight bed. How could a crop steering strategy look like for me? Is it better to adjust temps instead of messing with soil moisture content and tension? What do we think? Yeah. I mean, temperatures are definitely going to be a lot easier to control. Um, however, you can play with osmotic potential in something like living soil and, you know, start to make sure that you're getting the correct amendments at the right time to release a certain amounts of um, nutrient availability. Um, so it just kind of comes down to a planning game. You know that Jason, and also just uh, what kind of emitters are you using in your irrigation, you know? Traditionally, a lot of people were using, you know, something like the octobubbler that's fairly high rate. Like if you're at 20 gallons per hour, we're putting on a big shot fairly quickly and that bigger bed can take it. But you can also kind of look at what the vegetable growing world does. And that's, I mean, that's why we are using drippy, low flow drip emitters in cannabis, um, not only for the crop steering aspect, but if you can slow down that irrigation rate and break it up into more irrigations, you can still pulse that it's just with the bed, you're going to have a narrower range and living soil in general, you know, just like talking about it earlier, if you over dry that bed, you're going to kill a lot of the biology in it. So you're going to be stuck in depending on what your consistency is. Like I'm not looking at your data in front of me, but you might be in a 25 to 40 
25 to 40% volumetric water content range, or maybe even narrower might be 25 to 32 because that bed is so big. Uh, depending on how big your plant is, it might not need that much, but you can still crop steer inside of those small ranges. It's just going to take very, very small irrigations and a lot of them. Yeah, one thing you might take take a look at as well is just think about matrix potential of the substrate of the soil that you're working with, um, and get an idea of of where your um, your critical points are as far as what what might start to wilt, especially if you are trying to push some of those strategies. Yeah, and then also just how you're uh, handling your your living soil. If you're using fermented inputs, are you feeding it? You know, what are you feeding? Is it mostly compost teas, or are you amending that bed? Uh, with a strategy so that you've got, you know, the right nutrients hitting at the right time. So there's, there's a few different ways to go about it. Um, generally though, it's hard to make big, big steering differences in a bed right off the bat. I would, uh, give it some practice, come up with a plan and say, Hey, I'm going to try to go more generative or more vegetative at a certain time. You know, if we're going to try to bulk, let's try to bulk, but you're going to have to stick to an irrigation schedule that whole time. If it's eight small irrigations throughout the day, you're going to have to do that that entire time. And any of these uh, irrigation strategies we, we talk about as well, like if you can't follow the directions the whole way through, you're not going to get the results you're looking for typically. Thank you for that. Um, Peter did come back with a little bit more information. Um, actually, sub-irrigation plus light top watering. I don't know if we want to add to that. I mean, it's, it's still the same thing. It's about how, how slowly you can deliver that and how, uh, how you can pulse it. So like with your sub irrigation, I'm not totally familiar with how quickly and how much water you're going to be putting on with that setup. That could be, you know, is it a buried soaker hose? What, what exactly are we looking at there? There's a lot of, not a huge amount, but a few different situations I can think of. And a lot of times sub irrigation is used in certainly a bigger bed situation, but yeah, it's going to go right back to that pulsing and, I would probably tend to stick. I mean, if you're outdoors, the sub irrigation is going to be more water efficient, but going with the drip system from the top is part of what gives us that root stimulation. It's the act, the action of that water moving downward through the soil. So the more of that you can have happening, the better as well. You want that root zone to stay very oxygenated and fresh. Look out for those roots. Awesome questions, everyone. We're getting more over on YouTube. Sorry, Maine wants to know. I steer strictly gin only for quality at the expense of yield. What PWEC are you aiming to hit throughout flower specifically for quality? So, you know, usually when uh, I'm looking at the success of a generative strategy, I'm typically looking about the, the low EC to the high EC. What are the dynamics? Uh, you know, what is the amount of EC change? And usually the higher that EC change is within reasonable ranges, uh, the, the more effective or the more generative the plant response is going to be. Yeah. We like to see, you know, usually a minimum of four to a five point swing and it can go all the way up to eight or nine. Not a big deal. Some people push it a lot further than that. Um, the dangerous thing about playing with that too much though, is you can really affect plant growth in terms of like that's going right back to the herm issue earlier, running too high EC late in flowers, very well associated with hermaphroditing plants. And, uh, as far as those, those, uh, values go, you know, that's going to depend on how high you can get your PPFD, whether you're running HID or LED, and then how much CO2 you have, you know, we've, everything has to be in line to run those high ECs and actually have the plant take advantage of it. If you don't have 
uh, CO2 supplementation, for instance, then you can't turn your lights up above 800, 900. There's really no point. You're just wasting power at that point. And then also if there's not enough CO2, the plant doesn't need as much nutrients because it's not photosynthesizing nearly as much. So just, just things to think about. Everything is kind of interdependent in the grow room. Awesome knowledge, everyone. We're still getting questions over on YouTube. Um, so Therese has another question. He was the person who asked about flushing and cocoa. But what if I don't water to run off during the grow? Um, would I benefit from using straight water the last few waters? Don't know how much you'd benefit. You know, fortunately with cocoa, you can you know, get away with running RO for a, a couple of days. I wouldn't recommend it though. Yeah. And typically you would, you would want to be pushing some runoff earlier on. I mean, that's part of the, uh, one of the fundamental problems with growing in a small media is that there's only so much space and this is a fairly inert media, so it doesn't have any pH buffering capacity. So in that case, I would really be looking at plant health because there's a reason this is all called drain to waste. And that's that there are things that need to come out of that block. If that pH creeps down low, then you're going to start to see, you know, the classic lockout is what a lot of people would have called it before, but basically general deficiency across all of your nutrients at a low pH state. So I would really encourage you to try to push a little bit of runoff and try to start testing your pH at least, you know, once or twice a week at the minimum. And that's going to help you have a lot more control uh, with your EC and the root zone. And, you know, obviously plant health pH are very closely tied together. Awesome. Thanks for that. Um, I think I'm going to pass it back to Keisha. We had a couple questions that came in. Fantastic. Thank you, Mandy. Yeah, on and popping on YouTube. And actually, Landon the Atlantis dropped a question, but uh, had submitted it previously. So I wanted to go ahead and ask it in a little bit of a new way, because we seem to have be getting quite a few questions around working with organic living soil today. So um, Landon wanted to know, like, how, to dif how does uh, crop steering in organic living, living soil differ from crop steering in hydro and specifically uh, around irrigations according to pot size. That's what he, they wanted to get a little more insight into. Yeah. So, I mean, first off of it's not going to happen nearly as fast. Um, when we talk about medias uh, and how reactive they are to the strategies that were be, uh, being applied, you know, something like that rock wool, obviously EC is going to change very quickly if we're trying to do some of these strategies, um, you know, in a, in a smaller substrate, if we're in a 200 gallon, like we're talking about, uh, you know, depending on how many plants we have in there, we're gonna, not going to have nearly the amount of uh, water loss uh, just based on a percentage of 200 gallons, right? And so it... Uh, I personally would say it's more difficult um, just because, uh, you know, our feedback loops are going to have to be planned out and strategized by uh, when we're doing these applications of um, of crop steering techniques, if you will. So, uh, yeah, it's going to take some planning and, and kind of might even take you a few cycles, whereas sometimes in uh, more reactive medias, you know, we can use that feedback and, and make an improvement for the next day. Yeah. And in terms of people running, you know, having success with living soil systems and crop steering, the biggest thing I see is finding an appropriate pot size that'll still allow you to get a dry back. So, you know, what, what is the plant height that you can work with if you want to do this and still be inside of a five gallon or smaller pot? Like if it's five gallons, excuse me, it's going to be fairly large. You know, it, you, you want to dial it because at this point, 
you're not using your input EC, your salt going in to really control your EC at all. You're relying on, on the biology happening in the soil. So really the biggest effect that you can have as a cultivator in terms of crop steering on those plants is going to be your irrigation strategies. And just like Jason said, that's going to vary wildly depending on uh, how much biomass you have pulling out of what size of pot you have. So if you have 200 plants in a bed and each plant effectively has three gallons of media, we might see a reasonable dryback if there's some larger plants. Um, if we have that same bed and all the plants are half the size, we might not see much dryback and effectively we'll be pushing it very, very generatively the whole time. And that's because we're going to be waiting for so long between each irrigations to try and achieve that uh, dryback, that significant dryback. Thank you guys. Landon posted a couple of follow-ups here. Also, I had that three starter lead auto top plant in my garden. I don't expect the auto top mutation to go to clones, but if the three leaves, three branches do pass on, how commercially viable is it? Assuming it produces quality flower. What do you guys think? Depends on your yield market and what kind of a premium you can get for it. I mean, that's kind of where, where it's at. You know, we, we see people, uh, with sale prices inside the same state, we use California for an example, you know, we're still seeing some super, super low prices down in the five and 600 a pound range, unfortunately, but that also ranges with people in the same area, getting all the way up to 1800, 2000 and up, uh, you know, we're not seeing like $4,000 pounds typically anymore, but, um, there are some growers that have been able to start choosing like, Hey, do I want to get this strain out? At 1800, I'll take the yield hit because my premium is so good compared to this other strain that's just blown out and overgrown in the market. Um, we kind of all know the hype around new strains all the time, and each one seems to have some fluctuation in price as it's rare, then it's popular, then it's, you know, <laughs> just there's too much of it in the market. And then we kind of see that cycle continue. So I think that's a whole, uh, a whole side of this whole game that people need to really like think about and do a lot of planning for, you know, you got to ride that line between what's popular in the market and what can I do to be still unique? Because obviously like right now, you know, West coast runs are huge. We're seeing all these different runs crosses, but having runs on your packaging and over 30% THC are two pretty important things to move products sometimes. So really looking at your market and figuring out what is appropriate is I think one of the most important things. And we can even extend that all the way in the other direction where we have people that are growing in quite a few different ways, but in greenhouses, low input style, purely for hash production, you know, in that case, um, do they look at yield? Of course, but they may not be quite as concerned about putting out uh, quite as high a quality of flower or, you know, that might be a little more okay with those fluctuating yields in the greenhouse. But for them in that situation, that is, that's the move. It's just adjusting to what your, your little slice of the market is and figuring out how you can economize on it. All gum comes down to the target outcome. Landon, good luck. Keep us posted. Mandy, sending it back to you. Oh my gosh, it is popping. It, that is an understatement, you guys. It is like really going off over there. Paul wants to know, and I love this question, cocoa or rock wool, which is easier for crops, uh, which is easier to crop steer for beginners? Cocoa. <laughs> In fact, anyone who is trying out, I mean, if you're, if you're moving to a smaller pod, if you're traditionally in a big media, like 
back to the 2050, 200 gallon stuff outside and you want to try crop steering inside, start with like a two gallon cocoa pot. Because one of the, the hardest things to get right off the bat, especially if you're coming from a different style, is just how small you're going to be flipping these plants. Um, especially if you have, you know, your high PPFD lights, CO2 and everything else in line, it's easy to overgrow the small pots and, uh, also cocoa, you know, we talk about it all the time. It's got that forgiveness. If your irrigation system fails, you're not necessarily going to lose your crop. You, you've got a little bit more time to play with. Love it. Um, Kyle had a question. Do you like to keep moms in a vegetative or generative state? Or switch back and forth, maybe veg when you know uh, you'll be taking cuts in the next couple of days, ECT, ETC. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, most of the time you are going to be in a somewhat more vegetative, uh, you know, getting to the, the balanced point is going to be something that might get you a little bit more nodes uh, to, to take cuttings off of. But typically we're trying to create as much biomass as fast as possible. And when we look at the purpose of uh, generative versus vegetative, vegetative is encouraging the growth of stalks, stems, and leafy material. The more of that that we can have, usually the, the more cuts that we can get off of a plant. Yep. And that's why, you know, uh, we're kind of seeing a trend in the industry and I, I know I always push it. Um, moving away from the traditional 10, 15 gallon mom pot in cocoa in the room and getting more towards, you know, I mean, that's actually one of the applications I like using Hugo's for, for instance, because you can crop out a decent sized mom fairly quickly if you're turning them over and it's a, you're going to be watering it vegetatively all the time anyways, you know, and in terms of moms, I think that's something to, to really consider. Um, if you're keeping your mom for three plus months and especially if it's in a big pot, a lot of times that pot can harbor, uh, soil borne diseases and pests so it's there's a lot of good reasons to make sure you're rotating your moms frequently enough and trying to find the appropriate pot size and irrigation strategy because you know to jason's point we want to have fast lush growth and a lot of it um, in a big pot with a plant that is not nearly that big or the pot's just so oversized that we'd need a 30-foot weed plant to get the ratio right um we're not gonna see very very much steerability at all you know, kind of an interesting thing that um, has always been a successful uh, trend that since I've started growing is we keep seeing bigger and bigger clones. Um, and so if you typically, you know, if we can cut a six inch clone or so, uh, we're going to shave some time off the, the amount of uh, veg time required in order to get that plant size to flip. Absolutely. Quicker growth, bigger plants. Um, as long as you're not dealing with hollow stems or something like that, there is a point where a clone is too big, but a slightly bigger clone will root better. You know, if that clone's right up, just barely under the dome, when you put that on, that's perfect. But if it's only four inches tall, the plant's got, it's got that much more to grow. And I don't know, in my experience, um, I, I just see better rooting in slightly bigger clones. Awesome. Kyle came back with a little bit more info. Yay, I want to try one-gallon moms with frequent rotations. So sounds like they're on the right path, right? Yep, that sounds pretty good to me. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks, everyone, for the questions over there. Make sure you answer our poll while it's still live. Iron Armor had a question. If you end up drying back to around 20% water content in slabs and say you're only able to reach a fill capacity of around 45%, what's a good way to rehydrate the slab without having a big EC swing? 
Uh, I mean, I'm not sure I really know of any good way to rehydrate it. Um, yeah, keep just keep it wet. Keep it at that 45 and don't let it drop down below 35 again. It's it's tough because when that happens, and I was actually dealing with it uh, today with a client, and you just run out of the ability to, to steer generatively. So if, if this happens early on in the cycle, uh, you know, we're just not going to be able to do a, you know, one or two hour irrigation window with say 22 hours of dry back is just not a possibility anymore. And so it, that's a real significant challenge with, uh, with pushing rock wool too low. If we miss irrigation on accident, uh, you know, if we just haven't had enough time to keep an eye on how fast our transpiration rates are increasing, all that stuff can be a liability. Uh, it's, it's why rock wool's the high maintenance, high performance type product. Absolutely. I know, uh, I don't like running it without fairly sophisticated irrigation control that I know I can count on. Um, yeah, I would probably look around the facility and say, well, why did, why did that hard dry back occur? Why did, why did it get over dried? Was it a failed event? Was something broken? Was it that the controller you're using your irrigation setup just takes too much time and is too much of a pain. So it's really easy to go a day or two without checking on it and adjusting. Um, probably try to pinpoint really nail down why it happened and, Hopefully it's as simple as like something was just turned off, <laughs> but you know, if, if you've got a fundamental problem that it's just difficult to get everything done in your facility, you might consider switching to cocoa. Ah, those are great notes. Yes. And iron armor, please let us know how that goes. Um, that is it for the questions on YouTube for now. So I'll pass it back to Keisha for our Instagram cues. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Mandy. I actually, uh, I'm going to pull up, we have a blog post about choosing between cocoa versus walk wool. We'll drop that in the chat so you can check that out, folks. Do, look, doing a little bit more research on the right substrate. Um, and then also we're rounding at the hour. So you got, you got just over 20 minutes to ask your questions live if you're on with us today. We got a write-in from Smooth CL. They were looking for some advice. If plants are sturdy and don't stretch much, should I veg steer the first week of flower to stretch them out? Um, I, I, sounds like something else is going on typically, right? When we're starting flower is going to be about the time that the plant is stretching, uh, almost as much as any point in its life cycle. Um, so keep, keep an eye out on how you're running your irrigations in your bedroom. Uh, are there some environmental issues that have, have put that plant into that position? Um, you know, there's a chance that it is strain related, uh, and just, Keep, keep an eye on and remember what you're dealing with there. If it is strain related, then document that and, uh, and give it a shot, you know, see what happens when you bulk it out. If it ends up doing a, a great job, then that's an extraordinarily generative leaning, uh, type of genetic. Yeah. I mean, there, there's so much out there in genetics. It's really hard to pinpoint that. And then also, you know, how, how is everything in veg? Like a, a common thing I've seen a lot and I know. You've seen it, Jason, because we talked about some of the same same places. Uh, humidity and veg, you know, PPFD and veg, actually maximizing your veg so your plants are coming in at the top of their game. You know, if you've got, and I know myself, I'm a really bad eyeball judge of light brightness, for instance, and that's one thing I've run into quite a bit. Is hey, at canopy level, you guys have 200 PPFD before you flip, just because all the lights are mounted on one level across the whole room. And all the benches are obviously the same level. So a lot of the plants just aren't getting enough light. Um, there's, there's a lot of little rabbit holes you can go down, but like we always talk, look holistically and make sure everything's in line before, and then you can start to dive into, is it genetic? 
And if it is, you know, sometimes a, a longer veg is in order, um, maybe trying to go, you know, pulse it pretty hard in veg. And then, yeah, we do see some plants. We always use the Mac one as an example when we're talking about stuff like this, but, uh, yeah, going vegetative fairly early on to try to get that to stretch out can sometimes be helpful. And if you've got, you know, multi-tiered with a limited headspace, maybe you found just the right strain for you. Wonderful. Thank you. Smooth CL. Look out. Keep us posted on what's going on over there. Oh, we got a little question here from Mikey. Mikey, I'll read it. If you want to unmute, you're welcome to, but uh, he writes, how do you guys feel about steering old school strains versus newer market exotics? Say a King Louie versus Lemon Cherry Gelato. Have you seen astronomical differences in the program required? Ooh, I love that. Great question. Uh, you know, I'm not super familiar with those strains specifically on what they prefer, but yeah, we've, I've seen very significant differences in, in how strains um, can be grown optimally based on crop steering. Yeah, I've noticed too, you know, when we're talking about old school strains like OGs, hazes, there are a lot of... Uh, older sativas out there that like to stretch out quite a bit. So yeah, our program is generally quite a bit different for some of those. Um, if we look at, if I've got like a super lemon haze, that's an awesome plant. I love that. Um, you know, I know it's going to take longer, but also I know that it's going to try to stretch quite a bit on me. Naturally it likes to grow and be a big plant. So I'm going to run that pretty generative all the way through and then probably kind of start to evaluate, okay, what kind of a market premium can I get for this? Because if I can't get it into bulking, and, you know, if I know I go to bulking, I'm going to lose quality, then I've got to make sure that my premium on that pound is there to make it worth it to, you know, have a strain that is a little bit more finicky and requires some more careful inputs. Thank you for that question, Mikey. I love that. Yeah, we have so much going on in the genetics front, so much new, new, but then I'm also starting to see a lot of classic people are starting to bring some of the classics back. So that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. Mix things up in the market. All right. Sending it over to you, Mandy. What's happening on YouTube? Oh, my gosh. What a great discussion. And we have some breaking news coming in over on YouTube. Um, our poll just came in. So we asked you guys. The results just came in. What are the best terps for summer? Um, and we couldn't, we couldn't post every terp, but we did put out limonene, pinene, caryophylline. Are you guys proud of me? I pronounced that, I think, correctly. Um, and then other to um, encapsulate all of the other ones. Um, and then limonene came in first with 50%. Pinene was 33%. And caryophylline was 17%. So thank you all for answering that. Um, what do you guys think? Uplift, yeah. People want, people want to feel good in the summertime, that warm sun. I feel like I like lime, uh, limonene the best, too. Um, so Peter had a question. Do you work with DLI indoors? Sure. Uh, you know, DLI, daily lighting integrals, just the accumulation of photons over a period of time. Uh, typically, when we're in flower, that's going to be 12 hours. So uh, what's our PPFD times 12 hours is going to give us our, our DLI. And um, I, you want to achieve the right amount of DLI. One of the nice things about DLI is to allow us to set our lights at an appropriate intensity when we go from 18 hour uh, light cycle for veg to 12 hour light cycle for flower, because um, you know, we'll want to increase our PPFD our light intensity so that we can match the DLI, make sure the plants getting the same amount of energy as it was coming out of the veg rooms. Yeah. And I mean, we really use it as a kind of a bearing point to help us know what, what that number needs to be in veg based on what we can achieve in flower. So, you know, 
go back, going back to, uh, oh, we got a lot of throwback kind of topics today, but, um, with veg, if you've been vegging under low light conditions, uh, you, that, that's how you can figure out how high you need to get it up to in order to maximize your production in flower time, because you're either going to harden the plants off to that light and veg, or you're going to do it in flower and waste production time and end up with a smaller plant because you can't push as much light to them early on. Awesome. Great notes for that. We had more questions come in. Desmood wants to know, when you say high VPD, is that when transpiration is at its best or when transpiration is low? That always confuses me. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be kind of a bell curve when we look at ideal transpiration versus VPD. So typically our highest VP or our highest transpiration rates are going to be in the ranges of about 1 to 1. 1.4 uh, VPD. Uh, typically when, when plants are younger, we're going we're gonna to keep things a little bit more humid. So we'll have that VPD on the, the low end, uh, you know, being at say 0.8 in veg is going to be just fine. Uh, and then uh, basically what happens is we're looking at the still model conductance when we talk about transpiration rate is how, how much of the pores in this plant are open to the atmosphere, how much gas exchange is happening, how much water vapor are we losing through the stomates. And basically when uh, the humidity is too high or temperatures too um, low, looking at uh, VPD that is low, then what's going on is those stomates aren't going to be open as much. Uh, basically the environment's just not telling those things to be opened up. And basically, as we start to get to, you know, say 1.2 being the mid-range for that, those stomates are going to be uh, as full open as they possibly can, uh, considering all other environments are in check. And basically what's happening there is they are uh, in their happy spot to be uh, letting off water and photosynthesizing at the max rate. When we get too high of VPD, say we're up in that 1.8 range um, or any higher than that, it's the stomates are going to start closing up because they're trying to protect the plants from drying out. Uh, really, they're just making sure that their water loss is not exceeding how much water they can uptake. Yeah, and I think one thing to really look at when you're, you're trying to dial that a little bit is uh, look at your plant morphology a little bit. Like if you've been running your veg at a 2.0 VPD or you're just struggling to get humidity into the room in either you're going to notice a little bit different plant morphology. You'll have some kind of thicker, almost leathery leaves that are glossier and the, the stomata on those leaves themselves will be smaller if you're to flip that leaf over and look at it under, under a dissection scope. So a VPD is very important. If you can't get that in line, um, that's really where you need to start making some investment. You know, always say a low, low VPD, you're going to get mold, butter rot, and just poor plant growth in general, super high. Uh, totally different problem, but definitely not ideal either. Yeah. And then also, um, you know, think about your CO2 levels. Uh, what happens, it's it's really interesting because whenever I, I have people take in stomatal conductance readings, uh, I always tell them, hey, make sure that your CO2 is uh, set at, at a, a, a static level. Uh, try and keep that as consistent as possible because typically when uh, we get more CO2 um, up to a point, then that plant is going to be more water use efficient. And so its stomates are actually going to be a little bit smaller. So if we had a room ideal at say, um, 600 PPM of CO2, if we went up to say thousand PPM of CO2, uh, and there was adequate light, then those stomates are actually gonna be a little bit more closed. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about, uh, stomatal behavior. 
That was a great breakdown. Oh my gosh. And don't forget you guys, we have some resources over on our website. Um, we have a whole VPD overview that we just linked. Um, so go check that out. Yeah. And learn all about VPD. Um, we have a couple more minutes left in the show. So I'm going to get to these questions. PG wrote in, what would be your go-to method for popping older seeds? I have a lot that don't seem to sprout up. Closet grow scale. I like the paper towel and a Ziploc bag. Some are dark. Yeah. So I think what he's dealing with is you get kind of a hard seed coat sometimes, especially on older seeds. And then also um, that, that's actually a trait that comes up fairly frequently in cannabis. Uh, my favorite, there's little seed, there's little seed cracking tools. <laughs> so basically it's a teeny tiny press with a blade that just splits that seed in half, essentially puts a tiny crack in it so that the embryo, the root radical can come out. Or you can get real old school. There's sandpaper, a light acid bath. But basically what you're trying to do is just kind of chip the integrity of that shell so that water can get in and let it naturally start to swell and open up. Um, and you, awesome. I mean, people do use tissue culture for that as well. Embryo rescue is a thing. You're doing surgery on a seed basically. <laughs> but um uh, simple methods, little seed crackers are like less than 20 bucks, I think. And sandpaper is dirt cheap as well. Those are great notes. And uh, I'm taking those down because that explains a lot of my problems that I've had with seeds. Um, Chuck Mangioji had a question. If I were to do a large shot to field capacity, then do a long six to eight hour uh, slow drip, for example, 0.01 GPH, would I get similar results as if I were running veg cues? Or do I need to have the small maintenance shots for the tiny drybacks during the long six to eight hour long window. A slow drip is going to be as vegetative as uh, the balance gets, right? When we've got bigger drybacks between each irrigation, that's getting slightly more closer to the, the middle to the balance type of strategy. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's kind of important to have those P2 drybacks. That's making sure you get good, uh, oxygen and air infiltration into the media the thing i would worry about with the slow drip is if you're going up to field capacity and holding there you might kind of start to see some signs of overwatering. Your, your media may stay very very wet and not get as much or not get the dry back that we're looking for awesome thanks for that um i think that's it for youtube for now so back over to you keisha Thank you, Mandy. Well, while all that was going on, we had a whole conversation happening in the chat here about steering old school strains versus newer market exotics. And Mikey and Bilbo, I don't know if you guys want to address any of that, but um, really great conversation happening. And then Bilbo had a question. I will ask it for you, Bilbo, and you're welcome to unmute yourself if you want to add to it. Um, we want to know what's the thought around CO2 concentration with a 24-hour veg? Anything you want to add to that, Bilbo? Yeah, sure. Hi. Um, basically, you know, we've been monitoring the DLI forced to run a 24-hour veg due to uh, environmental variances, and the easiest way was to just keep the lights on. Um, following you know, two to two two to three hundred parts per million above the uh, DLI uh, PPF at the canopy, it doesn't really leave me augmenting the CO2 in the environment, and I'm wondering if there's even anecdotal evidence that I can increase that CO2 to a level that would be 
seen in a veg that was only 18 or 16 hours or whatever you decided to do and under normal circumstances. Hmm. I think the problem, I'd, I'd just run the standard concentration PPFD plus two, two to 300 right in there. I mean, the plant needs it as long as the lights are on. Right. So my, Having a 24-hour veg, keeping the DLI in alignment, it doesn't have me running more than essentially 250 PPF. So environmental CO2 being about 400, 450. So if I say I'm at 250 and I'm 250 PPF, and I'm going to add 250 to 300 of CO2, I'm only just 50 PPM above environment. So let's just do some numbers. I'm going to work back from a uh, flower. If you're going in a flower, it's let's give it a pretty high intensity, say, you know, 800 um, PPFD. So you'd be at say 400 PPFD at your 24 hours um, latent in veg. Yeah. So that's, I think, uh, yeah, you're going to have to baby those plants, take them into flower at, at 24 hours. Matching DLI isn't very equivalent because the, the light intensity never gets very high at the least surface level. I mean, that's part of why matching. That's why we can match DLI going into flower. If you've got an 18 hour veg, just because you've already cranked that light intensity up enough and the leaves have grown in that higher light intensity. So, I mean, as far as the CO2 goes, Bilbo, yeah. If, if your lights are that low, you really don't need it. I mean, uh, good old home grows, <laughs> no CO2 supplementation. Let's say, you know, someone's one light closet. If you can get through 400 PPFD and 400 PPM of CO2, that's probably about as good as it gets in a house. You know, I mean, personally, I think it's, it's just going to be kind of tough as long as you're having to deal with the 24 hour veg. One option though, might be to up that light intensity and shorten the veg up with 24 hour veg. We're looking at the total amount of photons that go on the plants during the entire veg phase, not just during the you know dli only applies when you have a dark period right so now we're looking at what is the cumulative amount of photons that this would get over the entire veg cycle and if your lights are on yeah how much longer would that be six hours longer in a day uh you're you're just getting that much more energy to the plant and growing it that much faster interesting thanks for that yeah i mean otherwise i would just be really careful about bringing it into flower you know low ppfd and just having to be patient with it honestly they do they do really well uh, there must be uh something in the water or uh, what, what ppfd are you bringing them into flower at out of the 250. well it, it's only 250 right up until the end mm -hmm. um the dli does go a little bit or sorry the ppf does mm -hmm. go higher to 450 sometimes five okay but it's only if the plants are able to take it mm -hmm. you know if there's any signs of stress or obviously we're keeping it down backing and understanding yeah backing it off but cool. in veg uh, in flower the first couple of days during that root in we just manipulate the kpa in the room to uh encourage that dry back and then it's off to the races well yeah i mean it sounds like you've got it about as good as it's going to get with the 24-hour veg and yeah, with the CO2, it's just all about the numbers. If you don't have enough light on them, you don't really need to go crazy with it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks for the question. That's a real brain scratcher. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that.
Great question, Bilbo. Yeah, it's always good to hear directly from from the folks who are doing it. So thank you for that. Thank you for your insights. And then Mikey, uh, around the question around um, seeding older seed, dealing with older seeds, wrote a small scrape on the shell or a drop of H2O on your paper towel. So got some advice from another expert here. Appreciate that. All right. We are rounding up the last few minutes here. I'm going to ask this question because I thought it was really good one and a great overview opportunity here. Someone wrote in wondering about Terrace 12 sensor placement for pots that are tall and narrow. What's the recommended way to approach the install? So, I mean, usually it's going to be a a little bit higher. Uh, I mean, it's still going to depend on the dimensions of taller and narrower. Um, really the, you know, we've got that installation template and we've just tested different sized medias. So those are the sizes that are printed on there is the the heights that we know. Um, if you want to kind of get that number for yourself, do a, a water weight test that tells you how much percentage water content, um, is in that, uh, that substrate at saturation or field capacity, and then poke your Taros 12 in at a few different levels and, uh, where those numbers agree. So if it field capacity is at say 47% for whatever specific media you're using in that tall, um, tall skinny bag, then poke that Taros 12 in at a few different heights. And the height that says 47% is the one that I would use. Boom. There it is. Thank you for that. All right, Mandy, anything else happening on YouTube we need to know about? Oh my gosh, great show, you guys. Great questions. I love the discussion. We got so many great shout outs. Peter said, crop steering is complex, but I'm getting closer. Thank you guys so much for the input. Des Mood, um, we did the breakdown on VPD for him. So he said, that. now that's an answer. So thank you all for the very succinct breakdown on that. And Landon the Outlandish wanted to say thanks. Always informative. So yeah, great show. Back to you, Keisha. Whoop, fantastic. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up here. Anything you guys want to, Seth and Jason, you want to say before we wrap it up for the day, for the week? Yeah, for, for yeah, greenhouse growers and outdoor growers, you know, we're getting right into the summer. I hope uh, everything has gone well up to this point, and it's uh, time to see these plants run. Yes, and when you share them in the stories, growers, be, be sure to tag us. We're able to help you out. Fantastic. All right. One more thing before we go, remember to head over to Arroyo.shop for some limited Arroyo, limited edition Arroyo merch like the t-shirt I'm wearing right now. We just opened last week and the items are flying off the shelf. So you're going to want to get them while they're hot. Mandy, anything else we want to say before we go? Oh my gosh. Thank you guys for the love. And remember to nominate us for best podcast, uh, cannabis podcast of the year for the MJs. Thank you guys so much. Thanks everybody. Seth and Jason, thank you for another great conversation. Mandy, as always, couldn't do this without you. Thank you for co-moderating with me. And thank you to our producer, Chris, for all the magic behind the scenes. Thanks to everybody for joining us for this week's Arroyo Office Hours. We do this every Thursday. And the best way to get answers from the experts is to join us live. To learn more about Arroyo, book a demo at arroyo.io. One of our experts would be happy to walk you through all the ways it can be used to improve your cultivation production process. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover on Office Hours, post questions anytime in the Araya Araya app, drop your questions in the chat or on YouTube, send us an email at support.araya.metergroup.com or DMS on all the socials. We want to hear from you and we will send everyone in attendance a link to today's video. It'll also live on the Araya YouTube channel. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share while you're there. See you all next time. Thank you. Bye. Office Hours Live is brought to you by Arroya, the ultimate cultivation platform. 
Unlock the power of crop steering through our state-of-the-art sensors and software. Repeat successful runs and scale faster than ever before. Schedule a demo today at Arroyo.io.